Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, this week we had a pretty good uh, video go up with uh, Jeff Hawkins, a really interesting talk with him about life at the Ant Base and a lot of information about uh, Scientology marketing and the Dianetics campaign in the 1980s that he ran. Very interesting. Uh, people have been giving me a lot of very positive feedback on that. Follows right up on my interview a week ago with uh, Mark Headley, where we also discussed some uh, very interesting stuff about David Miscavige and the International Base and Scientology stories. And Anyway, I've got more interviews lined up coming up uh, this week and, and into the future that I think you guys are going to like, so be sure to check those out. And also, please do check out my podcasts. Uh, the Sensibly Speaking podcast posts every Saturday. This week I had Dr. Alexandra Stein on. She is a cult expert and social psychologist. Uh, fascinating discussion. Again, a lot of positive feedback coming in on that. And, uh, and I think there's a lot to learn from um, that and from my other podcast episodes. That's why I put them out there. And I hope you guys will take advantage of, of all the information I'm putting out there because um, there's a lot. I had, you, know, you get over 100 episodes of these things and you start thinking, Jesus, man. I can't even remember all the stuff I've talked about, uh, but it's a lot. You know, sometimes I surprise myself going back through my list. Oh yeah, I forgot about that podcast. You know, anyway. Um, so I, I should I should probably get on some kind of a thing of reposting some of my older episodes on social media uh, for you know. But for new people who are coming to my channel, uh, I really encourage you to take some time and check out all the stuff I've been putting out over the last many years. And uh, finally, just a little plug for Patreon. I'm going to make this real quick, but I do want to say that if you're enjoying my channel and find it informative, educational, and entertaining, please do consider supporting me on Patreon. Even a dollar a month, not really, you know, a big deal, um, but it would really help. Uh, you know, if 100 people did that or whatever, then, you know, it's, it's just me that much further along in being able to achieve the goals I have for this channel. And, they are, and I do have more expansive uh, plans and goals for this channel. I mean, I would love, for example, to be able to fly out to somewhere and interview people uh, or see things uh, firsthand that sometimes I'm only able to talk about or research over the internet and bring that information and, and, and video to you guys. Uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm nowhere near being able to do that right now at, at, the, at, uh, at where I'm at now. So the channel is, you know, going. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I put a lot of work into this. In fact, this is my full-time job. And, uh, and it is only possible because of the support that you guys offer. So just wanted to throw that out there. Now let's get on with your questions, finally. Gary Lulu. I have heard this phrase said a few times before, but despite my best efforts at some amateur researching, I couldn't find anything close to resembling a proper definition. So here's my question. What does it mean when an SP is given a goldenrod? Is this something that makes an SP a super SP? Is this goldenrod thing anything related to or concerning an SP to begin with? After a short time of trying to find an adequate definition without any results, I figured I should just hit you up and find out the real deal. Keep up the good work. Now, this is a great question, Gary, uh, because it's really not obvious to a lot of people. And, um, okay, so here's the deal. Uh, in Hubbard's policies on running his organizations, he divided the organization up into seven divisions. 
Uh, Division 1 is the Hubbard Communications Office, deals with communications. Division 2 is dissemination, which has to do with uh, sales and book sales and getting uh, the word out about Scientology, but it's mostly about selling Scientology to the existing Scientologists. Division 3 is Treasury, and that has to do with, obviously, any accounting functions, paying people, paying bills, receiving income. Uh, division 4 is Production, or the Technical Division, and that has to do with training and auditing uh, services that are provided by Scientology organizations. That all happens in Division 4. Those are major services, by the way, the more advanced level services, not the beginning stuff that you do when you first walk in. We'll get to that part. Division 5 is the Qualifications Division, and that's sort of qual quality control and also internal staff enhancement and correction. Uh, so the staff members, when they're doing their courses or getting their auditing, uh, that's supposed to happen in Division 5. Most of the time it ends up being crammed into Division 4 because Division 5 doesn't end up having their own auditors or their own course room or supervisors for the courses and that sort of thing. Uh, so they end up piling into Division 4, which is already set up for that for the public. Um, but in some larger organizations, they do have separate course rooms and separate auditing uh, rooms and separate auditors just for the staff. And that's what qualifications or Division 5 deals with. Division 6 is actually three divisions, 6A, 6B, and 6C, but for our purposes now we'll just say that they're all the public divisions, and that is the area that's responsible for public outreach, bringing new people in. Uh, introductory services, personality tests, um, the uh, Division 6B is public servicing, uh, so um, when people come in and start new services, like the beginning level courses, that's all done in those course rooms, which are again supposed to be separate from the Division 4 course rooms. And most small orgs, they are combined together, and so the new guys are doing their stuff right sitting right next to the guys who've been around for a while and are doing the more advanced stuff. But it's not supposed to be that way. And 6C is uh, field control that has to do with all the um, liaison and coordination and creation of Scientology front groups like Narconon, Applied Scholastics, uh, Criminon, Way to Happiness, all those activities are fall under that division of each Scientology organization. That's also where I think, um, oh no, the chaplain is also over in 6B, that's, a, that's a, the, the chaplain, the person you go to if nobody else is going to listen to you. And um, uh, 6C also has um, what are called field staff members. Um, so uh, that's public who you know, go out and bring new people in and get a commission for it. All right, now I laid all this out just to kind of give it a little layout of this organizational structure. To get back to your question now, each one of these divisions has its own color flash assigned to it. So I'm sure Hubbard picked this up from the military or something, but uh, different pieces of different colors, uh, paper are used or are supposed to be used for the different dispatches or communications coming out of each division. Uh, oh, by the way, that's right, I skipped one. Division 7 is the executive division, and that's where all the organization's executives are. So the head of the organization and his deputies and the basically the structure uh, also, that's where the Office of Special Affairs is located for each individual organization, is in Division 7. And there's an executive called the LRH Communicator, and uh, he's got people under him, and, and that's supposed to be the guy who 
back when Hubbard was alive, actually literally received Hubbard's communications and made sure that the organization complied with any orders he sent down. So that's all Division 7. So I don't have all the colors memorized, but I'll tell you that Division 1 is goldenrod. Okay, so any communication or uh, issue that comes out of Division 1 is on goldenrod paper. And that's the one most Scientology orgs manage to find the money to fund. So you, you, know, you find goldenrod around because when ethics orders are issued or suppressive person declares are issued, all of these things having to do, there's a ton of different issues that they can send out. Uh, sources of trouble declare, PTS declare, uh, court of ethics uh, write-up or the findings of a court of ethics, court, a committee of evidence. Uh, when it's called, it's issued on goldenrod paper. When the findings of the committee of evidence are issued, that's on goldenrod paper. So, of course, suppressive person declares are issued on goldenrod paper. Okay. Uh, division two, I think, is pink, or no, division two, I can't remember division two, but division three is pink. That's treasury. Four is green. Five is uh, qualifications is gray. And I think division six is like uh, sort of uh, off-white, it's a tan, or not tan, but a sort of peachy, uh, off-white color. Anyway, whatever. And Division 7 is blue. So that's why you see Hubbard, uh, some of Hubbard's issues, uh, executive directives, for example, are on blue paper, because Division 7's color flash is blue. So, uh, basically, goldenrod has become a kind of slang in Scientology for anything that's, you know, these ethics orders that get written on goldenrod paper. And that's why, in instead of calling it an SP declare, uh, we'll just call it, oh, he got some goldenrod. You know, and it's not and, and when you're in the world of Scientology, that doesn't, that's not a, homi a, a synonym for um, an SP declare. It could be some justice action. You know, we, it, you, like I said, all these other things. Uh, formally calling somebody uh, a potential trouble source, those PTS declares. And uh, that's not as bad as an SP declare. Or justice actions, there's goldenrod on that. But mainly, uh, especially by us in the outside of Scientology world, we, when we're talking about goldenrod, we're talking about SP declares. So that's the whole story behind it, and I hope that answers your question. Mary Beth Wiley. I found this quote about LRH policy. We own a tremendous amount of property. We own a tremendous amount of material and so forth, and it keeps growing. But that's not important. When buildings get important to us, for God's sake, some of you born revolutionists, will you please blow up central headquarters? Don't get interested in real estate. Don't get interested in the masses of buildings because that's not important. The Genus of Scientology, Anatomy of the Human Mind Congress, 31 December 1960. My question is, how do current practicing Scientologists following the word of LRH justify ideal orgs when it is the absolute opposite of what LRH states in his policy. Also, when LRH asked the born revisionists to blow up central headquarters, does that go against the policy of not saying anything against the leaders of Scientology if it is an actual policy? Thanks for the question, Mary Beth. This is, there's a lot of different ways I could address this question. Uh, I'm just going to throw a couple things out here. First off, 
it doesn't really matter what Hubbard says or wrote anymore. If David Miscavige contradicts L. Ron Hubbard in some fashion from the stage or in, you know, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation or addressing an organization, it doesn't matter. David Miscavige's word is senior to um, anything L. Ron Hubbard said or wrote at this point. Scientologists would not tell you that. They wouldn't describe it that way or, or even they don't think that that's how they perceive David Miscavige's orders and directions, but that that is empirically, that's how it works. And you bringing up this quote is just one of many, many, many examples of how David Miscavige has uh, contradicted L. Ron Hubbard's directions blatantly. I mean, just wide open. Just, you just couldn't be more, more blatant in, in taking something Hubbard wrote and just going, we're not doing that. We're doing this. David Miscavige sold the whole idea of ideal orgs with hours of briefings at all different levels of Scientology. And, and he wasn't asking anybody's permission, by the way, when he was doing this. He was briefing them that this is what we're doing. So uh, his word is law in Scientology, and if, as I've gone over in earlier episodes, if you contradict or come up against or in any way question what David Miscavige is doing, all of Scientology is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. He is the senior authority of Scientology, and let's not forget, he's alive. L. Ron Hubbard is dead and has been for decades. So yeah, sure, it's nice that Hubbard wrote that, but We've, you know, like here's one way Scientologists could justify this. If you were to sit them down and show them this policy and say, what gives? They would tell you something like, well, yeah, but that was in 1960. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard then went on to, you know, St. Hill and build Clearwater and uh, the, you know, the big blue complex and all the buildings for the Sea Org after that. In fact, the Sea Org itself came into being after that. So clearly, L. Ron Hubbard wanted expansion of Scientology, and he wanted it to grow. And so we have to pay attention to these buildings, and we have to, you know, spend all these millions of dollars to make Scientology's public image a an accurate reflection of the quality and um, miracle of Scientology's technology. We can't have folding chairs and folding tables and ratty carpet and peeling paint coming off the walls and no toilet paper and sinks that don't really work all the time. That can't, that doesn't reflect the, the brilliance of L. Ron Hubbard or the brilliance of Scientology. We need to do this. <laughs> okay, so, uh, and they're not entirely, I mean, when you're in the Scientology mindset, you kind of go, well, that, make, well, that really makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense, of course, as with everything in Scientology, is not that every single idea of Scientology doesn't make sense. It's that they take it to this extreme, you know, they just, they just go as far as they possibly can with this stuff. So you end up buying these buildings that are just, they're, people are swimming in them because the staff aren't manned up, the, the fields are very tiny, there's not a lot of public there. So they, you know, they're just going, uh, they're just going crazy with this thing. And that is Miscavige, you know, adding to this idea. But what I just described to you was part of the sales pitch of why ideal orgs were necessary. Now, of course, Miscavige didn't pull out this policy letter and go, well, here's what Hubbard said, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. He, he, just, he just ignored that altogether. He just didn't even pay any attention to that policy. Um, 
It was point I had not actually remembered that policy myself as a Sea Org member when Miscavige was talking about um, the ideal org program and briefing on it. I got sold immediately. I thought this was an amazingly good idea. And uh, for a number of reasons, other other reasons Miscavige laid out. And that didn't occur to me to remember this relatively obscure tape, uh, this, this line from this lecture from 1960. It was when Debbie Cook's email came out in uh, 2000, New Year's 2012 that I went, oh, because she quoted that policy in her very lengthy email about all the reasons why David Miscavige was totally off the rails and was driving Scientology right over a cliff. And this was one of the points that she made. She said Hubbard you know, said not to do this. And when I saw that quoted and what she had to say about it, I went, yeah, she's right. You know, Hubbard didn't say to do this and take this to the nth degree and, and go crazy with buildings, you know. And I had seen the shift from concentrating on services and concentrating on getting people up the bridge and concentrating on helping people. I had seen it shift over, over the years that I was in the Sea Org to money, 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 money. And I just went, wow, you know. So that quote made even more sense to me in 2012 than it would have in 2004 when I first heard about ideal orgs and Miscavige was first talking about them. Um, I would have poo-pooed that reference, uh, pr probably pretty similarly to how I gave you a rationalization of what a Scientologist would say earlier, you know, a few minutes ago. So, um, so I had to see, live through and see how this ideal org program was rolling out to see how ridiculous it was and how, uh, what a con it was to get, oh yeah, that does contradict Hubbard and so Hubbard wouldn't be doing this and so maybe we shouldn't be doing this. You know, so anyway, that is, uh, anyway, like I said, that's just one of many examples. There are so many, mm, well, there's really only a couple, but there's, it, there's a lot to say about them. So I can't get into all the psychological mechanisms I've learned over the last five years about why people go along with this kind of thing, these contradictory ideas. I mean, the cognitive dissonance is one of the is one of the mechanisms, right? You have this contra you have this policy here, but you have David Miscavige here. These things contradict. They have to somehow figure out the cognitive dissonance, the noise that these conflict conflicting ideas create. They got to somehow sort that out for themselves. And generally speaking, they're going to sort it out in the direction of the person who is alive, who's running things right now and telling them this is how we're how it is and what we need to do. They're going to tend to go in that direction rather than go in the direction of, well, wait a minute, Hubbard said this and that does, you know, uh -uh. and so that's, you know, that's what a, most Scientologists did that. A few Scientologists sorted out their cognitive dissonance by going, oh yeah, this miscavige is full of shit, <laughs> you know, we're to get out of here. And, and a lot of people left. So kind of what you're seeing with Scientology now is a, is a winnowing, a, a, you know, they're, they're pulling, all those people who you know, kind of would, would understand and would read, understand, and agree with L. Ron Hubbard's take on things, look at what Miscavige has done or is doing, and they just go, ugh, this guy's for the birds, and they leave. And that's why independent Scientology exists, and that's why a lot of, that's why the church's membership has crashed as hard as it has. So what you have now in Scientology is really these hardcore Miscavige followers, or people, like I've mentioned before, who uh, can't leave, you know, second gens, uh, you know, like the kids of these people or 
um, or spouses or business partners of these people, these hardcore fanatical believers who can't say, you know, they have to stay under the radar. They can't say, uh, yeah, Miscavige is full of shit and I'm leaving because then they'll be, then the connection will be severed and they'll lose their family or their, their spouse or their business or whatever. So, uh, that's kind of how I see things at least. And I hope that that gives, that everything I just said there gives some explanation for how it is that existing Scientologists in this day now reconcile or can reconcile completely contrary ideas. Um, and there's other, there are, uh, you know, there's lots of other mechanisms at play here. Um, I was just reading about the Milgram uh, experiments, um, which is not the Stanford prison experiment. The, 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 uh, the Milgram thing is a, is a different thing. And, uh, the, and what that has to do with is, um, is people's response to authority. Just the fact that an authority is telling you to do something, three out of four people are going to do it. <laughs> you know, so there's also just that. There's not a lot of thinking involved. They're just, oh, here's an authority person. He's telling me what to do. I'm going to go do it because that's what he said to do. I mean, sometimes it's just that unthinking. So, you know, that's kind of uh, how, how that all goes. Tiernan Feeney. How does Scientology trust its members when it comes to internet access to your channel and others? YouTube shows and interviews by you, Aaron Smith-Levin, Steve Mango, and others often have troll-like comments, obviously by Scientologists. My question is, how are they allowed to watch your videos or read stories at all? Surely there's a risk that they may hear or read something that may act as a light bulb moment and turn them off Scientology. The people who generally are trusted with doing anything on the internet within the world of Scientology are people in the Office of Special Affairs. And these people have been vetted to some degree, most to a great degree, on their loyalty to Scientology, their committed, you know, their fanaticism to it. And, um, and there's, you know, if you want to talk about cognitive dissonance, man, these guys are the worst. And the, the OSA people, the Office of Special Affairs people. I mean, I met and interacted and worked with quite a few of them over the years when I was in the Sea Org. And the way I've sort of come to describe these people, uh, for, the, for a lot of them at least, not all of them, not by any stretch, but, but quite a few of them when it comes to Office of Special Affairs work is these people have shark eyes. You know, they're just blank, dead, black. I mean, they're just not there. They're, they're, you know, there's something else going on behind those eyes, and generally it's not very good. Um, that, the Office of Special Affairs is a place that you have to want to work in. You don't just randomly get transferred to OSA. Uh, you got to want it. And if you don't want it, they don't want you. So, one, this has to be the kind of work that you crave doing, and two, um, you know, there's loyalty checks, there's security checks, there's things that they're going to do to vet you and make sure that you're with the program. And then there's a whole level of indoctrination that occurs with OSA staff that the rest of Scientology doesn't get. There are confidential issues and directives and guidelines within the Office of Special Affairs that no one outside the Office of Special Affairs ever lays their eyes on. And this is deep conspiratorial information. It is not true information. It is the biggest pack of lies and nonsense and absolute insanity that you've ever had anything to do with. But that's Hubbard speaking to his spy masters and his spies and his, his field personnel in the area of covert operations and intelligence operations. That's what OSA is for the Church of Scientology. And so he's briefing them on a worldview that is, that is just wrapped up in conspiracy. 
I mean, this guy puts Alex Jones to shame. It is amazing the, 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 the dots that Hubbard connects between international bankers and financiers, um, government leaders, psychiatry, media. I mean, all of these are in some tight-knit conspiracy led at the top by a group of, you know, 12 or so guys who run the world, according to Hubbard, and who are absolutely out to get Scientology specifically. Not betterment groups, not self-help groups, Scientology. That's who they're gunning for. Now, it's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty laughably stupid because if you had multi-billion dollar uh, corporations, mega corporations, media outlets, if you really had all of psychiatry operating as a unified force to come take some group out, and they really meant business, and there really were, there really was a conspiracy, and they really were these guys with this much power, the puppet masters of the world, so to speak. Do you really think Scientology would have survived this long? I mean, come on, man. How did they ever get tax exemption through the IRS if there's some big government conspiracy of all the alphabet agencies and military and, and, and intelligence agencies all arrayed against Scientology? If that's true, why would Fred Goldberg ever have even met with David Miscavige, much less acceded to giving them tax exemption? I mean, that alone proves that there is no conspiracy, that there's no big, huge, you know, array of matrix of, of groups aligned against Scientology, but these people believe that there is. That's where their heads are at. I'm explaining all of this so you'll kind of get where OSA's head is at, okay? These people who work in OSA, this is what they truly believe. They are conspiracy theorists. They believe that so strongly, and they also believe in Scientology so strongly, that despite any contrary evidence that throws that, that comes their way, they look at it and they go, well, this person's just lying. This is just an SP. He's just got overts. He's just done, he's just the only reason he's saying and doing all these awful things against Scientology is because of his own sins, right? Overt acts, the things you do that are against that are moral transgressions or are, or are bad things to do. So uh, Hubbard says that if you do that, if you do a bunch of bad stuff. You become a bad person and you just lash out at any group or organization that's trying to help mankind because you're the bad guy and you're trying to push man into the mud. And that's the view that, that these OSA people and the Scientologists in general have about people like me. I used to think this stuff, okay? So I really do, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty d deep down a rabbit hole. And it took me a long time to climb out of that rabbit hole and, uh, and, and face reality. So, um, so I didn't have, for many, many years when I was in Scientology, I did not have a critically thinking mind. And I didn't examine the, the words of L. Ron Hubbard or the, the lectures of L. Ron Hubbard with a critical take. That's not how Scientologists look at L. Ron Hubbard's stuff or David Miscavige's stuff for that matter. So they don't, they don't read stuff Hubbard says and go, that doesn't make any sense, that's ridiculous. They read it and go, Man, that is just the most genius thing I've ever read before. It's amazing. My whole life is different now as a result of that one sentence. That's what it means to be a cult member. <laughs> so that's the attitude and the view that these people have when they watch me, Leah, Mike, Aaron, Steve Mango, all of us, right?
they're not hearing what we're saying. <laughs> they're only looking for, you know, the, the reason they watch us or pay any attention to us is only to see if they can find, if they can catch us out saying something really grossly horrible that they can use against us in some fashion. Or um, if we, you know, like we trip up somehow or we cough to some crime or admit something that, you know, maybe we shouldn't be admitting to or something. And that, of course, they're looking for that because they think we're these evil people who have committed all these crimes, which we're not. But that's what they think. So that's what they're looking for. So everything is filtered through this maze of, of, of uh, amazing cognitive mechanisms that, that this information has to filter through. And that's why they don't necessarily hear what we're saying and go, oh, good point. Or, oh, wow, I hadn't thought about that. That's, you know, they're not, they're not listening to us from that perspective. So that's how they can get away with uh, doing that. A lot, and to get to another part of your question there in terms of troll-like comments and stuff, not all of those are from Scientologists. Some of them are from just people totally just with nothing else to do except troll around on YouTube channels. I was particularly amused by seeing the, the sort of hive, <laughs> you know, swarm that came down on me after I posted a couple of uh, flat earth debunking videos. And for 24 hours, man, the comments section was just alive with insults and derogatory comments about me and my channel and what a horrible idiot I was. And so I went, wow, that's interesting. And then I learned in looking into why that would be that way, that there's some people who just do that for fun. They don't even believe in flat earth. They just think it's fun to sit on the internet and trash talk people. And then there are also independent Scientologists, and, I've, and they usually self-identify, so they're easier to spot. And they, um, they come around and troll me all the time because I'm you know, pretty anti-Scientology at this point, and I've made it pretty clear that I am. And, uh, and they don't like that. They think that Hubbard got things right and that it's all good, and who am I to question his greatness? So those are some of, that's the source of some of those nasty comments that you see. It's not all from the Office of Special Affairs. So anyway, hope that uh, gives you some information you didn't have before. And if there's any aspect of this that you think I didn't uh, cover, just let me know in the comments. Michaela Reedmuller. I have a question about LRH's kids, as this topic came up in a recent interview. It was said that it's strange that only one child, Diana, remains in the Church of Scientology. Since they're all Thetans living already for like a gazillion years, they don't necessarily have to have a bond with their father or his beliefs, do they? Since he was only their father during this lifetime, doesn't the concept of Thetans work this way? Sure, yeah, that is the way, that is the concept behind Thetans, but that's not why Elrond Hubbard's kids don't have anything to do with him, uh, except for Diana, who's basically trapped at the Int base, uh, and is still a hardcore gung-ho Scientologist and has been all of her life. Hubbard had like five or eight kids or something. I mean, I think there were five with Mary Sue alone. He had three wives. He had kids with all of them. A couple of them he disowned. Um, a couple of them tried to hook up with him and be his children. And he ended up turning on all of them. And uh, um, one of them, Arthur, committed suicide. Or so, uh, Arthur or Quentin? Quentin, sorry. Um, so, uh, you know, Hubbard was not a good father to his children, according to every you know, account that I've read about Hubbard as a father. He was uh, very, very obsessed with his Scientology work. Uh, Mary Sue, his last wife, 
uh, was much more motherly, much more mother hen over those kids. When, um, when Hubbard's uh, son committed suicide, his response apparently was, ah, damn it, he, you know, God damn him, he's done it to me again or something like it. Some kind of like very nasty, vicious response blaming his son for committing suicide. Uh, what, meanwhile, his wife, Mary Sue, is wailing in tears and, you know, completely losing her shit because her son just killed himself. And Hubbard's response is anger at how his son has, you know, made his life tough again. So, uh, so Hubbard, I think, probably had a better... Now, this is all strictly conjecture on my part, okay? Um, I think Hubbard probably had the closest relationship with Diana. Uh, she was his first daughter with Mary Sue, so she was the oldest of his, you know, last brood or family. Um, she hooked up with Scientology. She was an executive in the Sea Organization very early on and very much followed in her father's footsteps. Um, also had a little bit of a singing thing for a little while, but mainly she was Sea Org, and to this day she still is. In fact, I just today saw a picture of her having been sent down to Colombia to wine and dine some Colombian whales, some big, big money donors for Scientology down there. And there's something going on down in Colombia. We don't know exactly what it is, but Scientology's got a lot of attention on Colombia right now, and it's a little weird and a little interesting. I'm, my conjecture on that is that they're setting up shop or trying to set up some kind of a um, beachhead into South America instead of uh, what they've been doing, which is going through Latin America and Mexico and going down to South America. I think they, I think they want to get more directly involved down there because it seems like between Ireland, Taiwan, and now Colombia, they're setting up shop or setting up big headquarters type things in other countries in the United States. I don't know what the thinking is behind that. Just conjecture on my part. There's something up. Uh, anyway, getting back to your question about LRH's kids, um, the other ones basically just kind of drifted out of his life. I mean, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., uh, Nibs, he's, he's died, but he spoke out against Hubbard and then waffled back and forth, the waffling being prompted by a lot of threats and a lot of uh, financial uh, pressure on him by the church uh, over the years throughout the 1970s. He testified at the Clearwater hearings in, uh, I think, 81 or 82 uh, against Scientology. But, um, but he was pretty broken by the church because he had worked so hard for Scientology in the 50s and 60s with Hubbard and at some point broke off and realized, you know, something was wrong. And he's the guy who's quoted in the movie The Master as saying, to the Joaquin Phoenix character, the, the follower of, of, of the L. Ron Hubbard character, this, this guy who was the son of the leader says to him, you realize he's making all this up as he goes, right? <laughs> like he knows that there's, this, is just, this whole thing is all just a bunch of crap. So, and that was something that, that L. Ron Hubbard's real son, I believe, actually was quoted as saying, is that he was just making it up as he was going. So, um, so he was a real threat to Scientology, and they put a tremendous amount of pressure. You want to talk about fair gaming. I mean, it was Paulette Cooper level fair gaming. They were ruthless with him. And so they got him to sign things to recant on things that he had said and uh, interviews he'd given. Like he, I think he gave a fairly famous interview in Penthouse Magazine. I, n I never read that because uh, I don't read the articles. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just a joke. Anyway, um, that's kind of almost everything I know about Hubbard's kids. This is not a subject I'm expert on. I don't know, you know, tons about the history of his uh, kids and grandkids, but I know that much, so that's what I can share with you about it. Donna Fletcher. Do auditing sessions seek a floating needle even after confessing sins or transgressions? If so, could this help one to beat a lie detector test? Actually thinking of people like Danny Masterson here. If arrested, would a Scientologist be more likely to pass a lie detector test? I would say no uh, in terms of would it be easier for them to pass a lie detector test, and here's why. Scientologists believe that the e-meter works. They, uh, an e-meter works remarkably similar to how a, a lie detector works, or at least a third of a lie detector, because part of what a lie detector is doing is it's measuring skin uh, resistance, right? It measures, uh, and it's measuring sweat response when it's doing that. I mean, the guys who run lie detectors know what they're doing. The guys who run the e-meters have these bizarre explanations as to what the e-meter is doing and what it's registering. So they don't think that the e-meter is actually registering. They know, it's re they know it measures resistance to an electrical current, but they don't think that it's because sweat and muscle tension and, and um, you know, endorphins and adrenaline and those sort of things, they don't think that's what's causing the meter to react. They think spiritual mental mass is what's causing the meter to react. This makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and I've got to do a whole you know, video explaining all this, which is mostly, mostly written at this point. Um, but basically, in a nutshell, that's what Scientologists believe, that, that there is this sort of ethereal mental mass that contains, that, that is sheets of energy, which are your, your pictures, your mental image pictures, when you close your mind and think of something, this you know, sheet of energy is, is, the, is the picture you're thinking of. And the e-meters, you know, it, and that creates resistance to the electrical flow. So because Scientologists believe this, they're not trying to beat the meter. They don't think you can beat the meter. They think the meter is more accurate than anything uh, in terms of being able to register on the meter dial, on the needle, what their thoughts are, what they're, what they're thinking about, and uh, what their emotional state is, and how much of this mental mass is there at any one time. That's registered by this other dial called the tone arm. So, uh, so they're not trying to beat the meter. The floating needle is, the end, is one part of the end phenomena of any Scientology process, or almost any Scientology process, pretty much like 99.9% .9 of them, including security checking. That's how you know when you've got to the end of a security check question. You keep asking the guy, Did you, have you ever stolen an apple? Meter responds, okay, have you ever stolen an apple? And the guy goes, well, yeah, I stole an apple one time. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, good. Needle floats, good. Now, I'm gonna check that question again. This is how a security check goes. Have you ever stolen an apple? And the guy, and the auditor is watching the needle. And if the needle responds, in other words, gives a read on that question, then they're gonna take it up again. They're gonna go, okay, man, another time you stole an apple? You know, and the guy's gonna go, oh, man. Well, yeah, there was this other time, blah, 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 blah. Good, earlier similar, blah, 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 blah. Maybe it goes back five million years, good. Until that needle floats, right? That's what they're looking for is a floating needle. The needle floats, they go back to the original question. Have you ever stolen an apple? Watching the needle. And the needle 
needs to float in response to that question. And that is how you know you're done with that security check question. And you then go on to the next question because security checks are usually a form with lots of questions on them, sometimes hundreds of them. <laughs> okay, so it can take a long time to get through one of these security checks. Uh, at the other, on the other hand, it could take a very short time if you're just sitting there holding the cans and the needle's floating the whole time and meaning you're in a pretty good place mentally and emotionally and, uh, and the sec check question gets asked and the needle floats and okay, good, we're done with that question and then they go to the next one and the next one and the next one, right? And this is how it goes. So um, if a Scientologist were put onto a lie detector they would have no better, in fact, maybe worse of a time trying to fake or get their way through or beat a lie detector because of their proclivity to think that the machine knows more than they do and is able to register their thoughts before they're even registered consciously in their mind. That's how Scientologists think the meter works. It's a subconscious meter. It responds before you even know what it is that it's responding to. So that, so if anything, it's going to be the other way around. So I hope that all makes sense. And uh, let me know if uh, any other questions on that. Whoa. Whoa. It is time for Flash Answers. Mr. Marathon 1989. How tall is David Miscavige? I don't know, 5'1", 5'2", something like that. He's a short guy. I mean, he's, he's not tall. Uh, he passed me by in the hallway one time, and I think uh, uh, he came up to about here on me. So, you know, yeah, short guy. Venom Dust 1. I know Scientology is more than just Xenu, but with all the shirts and posters, how can they still tell people when they reach that level to keep it a secret if it is so well known? Man, I gotta tell you, I really don't know. I mean, I talked earlier about cognitive dissonance and about the mind of a cult member and stuff, but even on this one, I just kind of lose it. I can't get my head into that headspace because it is so open. It is so out there. All the information about OT3 is wide open in the public domain, as far as I know. And people who have done OT3 and gone all the way through to OT8 have told me, yes, that is all there is to it. It's all there. So how somebody in Scientology could be even dimly aware that it's out there on South Park or on the internet or that it's talked about and still maintain the idea that this information is going to kill you if you don't, if you aren't prepped for it or that somehow it's going to send you into this mental spin where you're going to be like, oh gosh, gee, you know, like I think they might have reconciled it a little bit with the idea that it's not just the information you have to know, but you have to actually try to run the process. And if you run the process before you're ready for it, then somehow that's what screws you up. But that's not what Hubbard said. So that's just them making shit up in order to make what Hubbard said make some sense. So that's, you know, that's the best answer I got for you on this one. Trumpy J. What about Tommy Davis leaving? Somebody comment on that, please. What did it do to Ann Archer? We have no idea. Ann Archer is not saying a damn thing about her son uh, having left the Sea Org. He did not leave Scientology. He is still very much a Scientologist, at least according to what he himself has said. People have reached out to him from the ex-community and he's rebuffed them every single time, told them to fuck off. 
and he has no interest in anybody in, in trash talking Scientology in any way. He uh, is still a very loyal Scientologist, and I'm sure that uh, his loyalty to his family and wanting to keep in touch with his parents and just kind of have a peaceful, chill life without Scientology, like destroying it, uh, is a big motivator for why he acts that way. So that's all I can really say about Tommy Davis because he doesn't say a whole lot about it. And, uh, and Ann Archer certainly has never said anything about it. So pretty much anything else I could say about it would just be pure conjecture and unfounded conjecture at that because I've never even interacted with Tommy Davis or Ann Archer to know where their head is at or what they think about things. Okay, everybody, that is the show for this week. Um, thank you very much for coming around and watching. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below. And I will see it, and I will put your questions in my queue. Patreon supporters get questions launched right to the top of the queue. So if you want to get your question answered right away, that would be the way to do it, because I have a very long queue of questions, and I do my best to get to them as rapidly as I can. But uh, I can only answer so many questions a week. So there you go. All right, guys, see you next week. Bye-bye.